Welcome back to the assembly rooms here at Derby. And as promised, our first sight of the young professional making his debut in big time snooker, the 18-year-old from Tooting, Jimmy White. Jimmy White pulls it off. Me, Jimmy White, has got all the shots. He's, uh, he's amazing. He never ceases to amaze you when you're watching him play. You know, you couldn't get more exciting than that. But that's how my life and game is all for. Well, first off, welcome to the podcast. The White Room Podcast with me, Pete Brooker, and my good friend, Ian, Jimmy White Fanatic on Snooker, on their Twitter. Nah, sorry. Fuck that right up. Way, look at that though. <laughs> <laughs> it gave me the full frontal. <laughs> you don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I'll just, I'll turn the visual off now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Especially as I've just eaten. Anyway, um, okay, so uh, what I thought we'd do, the the running order for the show, if you're all right with us, yep. Ian. We'll go yep. into a bit of Jimmy news first, so maybe cover the Joe Swale match. Yeah, um, yeah. And then we'll go straight into the interview with Chris Brereton, the author of uh, the Jimmy White biography, the second one. Awesome, awesome. I've been so looking forward to that. Excellent. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll splice that in there and then perhaps dip out of that and do a bit of snooker news in general, see what else is going on. Okie dokie. Uh, finish with a reading from the book and then uh, we'll... Uh, Cat the thanks night off. to Mummy. Yeah, thanks to the she old mum. She nailed that, by the way. That was, <laughs> oh my. <laughs> well, she was awesome. I, I was in the background and I just couldn't curb my laughter when she was coming out with the swear words. Because I've not heard a... <laughs> I, don't I think... was exactly the same and I don't even know her. It I... was just some, you know, uh, woman, uh, a mature woman, shall we say, mm-hmm. without wanting to push that boat out too far no no that's fine uh, a mature woman with a potty mouth and that's always funny isn't well, it well <laughs> i mean i just needed someone a little bit regular that could actually do the audio reading so, yeah. so i thought we'd ever give the audience a break from our voice um, yeah and it's pretty much you've got to use the tools around you my mum's got a lovely reading voice but i haven't heard her swear in about 20 years so <laughs> <laughs> and you heard about 20 in 10 minutes or exactly something. yeah um <laughs> So we'll have that, and then we'll just top the night off with a little video, a bit of reminiscing, um, and we've got a YouTube video for everyone to watch at home, okay? We, we do, we Sweet. do. Okay, mate, so... Just, just on your mum, by the way. Go for it. Uh, what was that programme that began, it was on years ago, that began, Are You Sitting Comfortably? Then I'll begin. Ooh. And it was about a little old dear who sat and read stories, and I can't remember the name of the programme... But um, she just seemed in that mould, you know, perfect <laughs> for for that. Whatever that was, she was that. Well, I'd like to think it's a genius bit of casting, but really it's just making use of your surroundings. We'll go with the genius bit of casting. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we're going to start with a little bit of sad news, I guess. So it's been a week, but the game happened. Jimmy White versus Joe Swale. Uh you were up at the crack of, crack of fuck, really, weren't you? Six o'clock in the morning for this. <laughs> I, uh, I got up at four, mate. I got up at 4 a.m. I was up uh, just in case. I had this theory because it sometimes happens in snooker tournaments that um, the estimated time ends up being quite a bit out, either 
they're on a lot earlier than they were supposed to be because earlier matches have uh, concluded rather sooner than anticipated. Mm. Or equally, earlier matches have gone the distance and they're on two hours later than expected. So I hedged my bets and I got up at 4 a.m., for it to start at 6.48, so uh, <laughs> two hours of sleep down the swanee. Well, that's commitment. Well, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I was uh, in bed at that point. Well, actually, no, I did get up Part just in time. time. Well, I, was, I got in uh, a cognac. I arrived in cognac in France at two in the yeah. morning. Um, so I had about four hours kip, got up at six, went straight to your Twitter feed, you know, see <laughs> see what the score was. Uh, That's commitment. And I said, what's going on? And you're like, tut, tut, Pete, have you not been checking my Twitter feed? I was like, Jesus yeah, yeah, Christ, yeah. give me a break. I've just got up. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, then I had to get wheeled out of there and I was and I was off on my jolly. So I missed the whole damn game. But let, uh, fill me in. Fill me in from the start, please, Ian. Let, let us know uh, the full horror story. Well, you say horror story. I haven't once moaned, I must admit, um, because I was kind of pleased by what I saw in many ways. But it was Jimmy against Joe Swale, the first round of the Indian Open. People will remember that in order to qualify for this event, Jimmy thrashed the world number 20, uh, Ali Carter, uh, 4-1 to reach uh, this event. Jimmy against Joe, then it was at 6.48, not the Monday just gone, but the Monday before. And... um, Full of optimism we were, and that optimism was uh, proven right, really, from frame one. Jimmy was uh, first in. He was uh, settled instantly. He got in with a 41, I think, before uh, slightly falling out of position. Joe responded with an 81, and straight away you knew, okay, both players are in form here. They're both knocking balls in for fun. Mm. Uh, We're in for a good game. And that continued throughout, really, the high standard. Uh, Joe Swale took the second as well. Um, the third frame was a wonderful, wonderful 96 break from the whirlwind. Oh. Uh, magical pots all over the place. Uh, and it just continued the, th- the, the theme. Uh, at this point, I think we'd only had about half an hour, 35 minutes of play. Mm. And three frames had already been and gone. The standard, therefore, was, was so high. And, um, and uh, Jimmy had topped it off with that 96. Did he miss uh, anything? Sorry to interrupt. Did he miss anything for the century or did he just run out of balls? It was a, he did miss something for the century, and I think it was a brown as well, so that would have taken him dead on 100. Uh, It was a tricky old cutback brown, though. It wasn't a given by any stretch of the imagination, Mm. and um, and he missed it by a a whisker. Um, But but no, it proved that both players were were bang in form. Um, Joe took the uh next one as well i think uh to open up a a 3-1 lead um jimmy i think then followed for for 3-2 um but what we what we had i think in the penultimate frame uh was a uh break if you like from the free flowing potting that the match had seen all the way through up to that point and we had a marvelous sort of 20 minutes if you like where they were just snookering each other for for fun, seemingly. Jimmy required a snooker or two to get back into the frame, and there weren't many balls left on the table. Mm. And it was a case 
So Jimmy would lay a snooker, Swale would get out of it and in turn lay Jimmy in one. Jimmy would get out of that and in turn lay Joe in one. And this just went on and on and on for about a dozen shots. And uh, it just proved, if if the free-flowing potting didn't prove it enough, that this sequence just put the cherry on the cake in terms of how high quality this match was. Mm. Safety was bang on. Escaping from snookers was bang on. Big breaks were there. This game, with for two players that are advancing in years, as we know, and they're, they're two of the elder statesmen of the tour, they served up a treat that to if if it was two younger bucks, the 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 snooker commentators would be saying things like, "Yeah, th- this is a guy to watch." Do you know what I mean? This is mm. a fantastic young player. Um, I didn't read or hear too much in terms of the standard of the game in any sort of written media or anything like that. Uh, but it really was uh, high quality stuff from both players, which is why, uh, despite Jimmy losing four two. I'm very much uh, joyed with what I've seen. It was a, a wonderful match. Jimmy played brilliantly. If you look at the stats, uh, Jimmy potted more balls than Joe, scored really? more points than Joe. Oh. Average score per frame, average points per frame, Jimmy had a higher uh, score than uh, Joe. But in all three of those sets of stats, both players were really high. Mm. Um they were both in the 50s, for example, in the average points per frame. Um, so it, it just served to highlight that this was two players banging form, a top quality match, and then you had a really surreal conclusion just to top it off. I heard about this. Um, Go on. Go on. It, it was it was it, it was surreal, but at one point incredibly worrying as well. And um, you had uh, Joe Swale approaching the finishing line. He was on the colours. He'd uh, nailed yellow, green, and brown. He left himself a tricky long blue, and suddenly the screen went black. And I thought, oh, okay, we have a power cut here. Perhaps it's it's happened before. You know, they'll find the uh, circuit box or something in a minute. They'll give something a kick, and we'll be back underway again in a few minutes. Um, The screen remained black for... A good few minutes. You saw both players still in their seats in the in the corners of the the arena, mm. but then a um, <clears throat> then a suited world snooker official appeared out of nowhere and said the audio came across perfectly. He said something along the lines of, "Gentlemen, I'm going to have to ask you both to leave the arena uh, immediately." Ooh. And as soon as I Heard that. I tweeted it straight away. I was still going with my commentary at this point. Did you say there was a terrorist uh, in there? <laughs> I, uh, I alluded to the fact that something like this may actually be unfolding before our very eyes. A power cut, you don't expect some bloke to come out and say, you know what, I think you better yeah. hit the road boys sharpish, you know? Um, Phone your wives, tell them to get out of town. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Pack the bags, go to your sisters, and all that. (laughs) Indeed, yeah. And obviously, this was in India. India has its history of uh, Mm. terrorist-related incidents. There was the Mumbai Hotel, uh, famously, a a few years ago. Um, So I can't lie; it was the thought that went through my head when that guy appeared and told them to get out of there now. Um, So they left the arena. 
On his way out, Jimmy made the schoolboy error of laying his cue down on the table. So I tweeted something along the lines of, Shit, if this is a terrorist attack, someone go and rescue Jimmy's cue now. Quick, <laughs> <laughs> go back in, go back into the gunfire. Go, go and get it, go and get it, you know. <laughs> yeah, good so, eyes, well, good eyes, I like that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was it was a worry from my point of view that uh, Jimmy's cue was going to. You, you were more worried about the cue well, than the uh, the yeah, than the audience lives, than people's you know? lives. <laughs> the, 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 the whirlwind wand was about to perish in some sort of terrible ISIS-related uh, incident. So I was slowly panicking, and. Um, and the, the 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 sort of nothingness continued for ten or fifteen minutes or so, maybe even longer, maybe towards half an hour or so. Um, and then suddenly the lights came back on. A few minutes later, the players returned. Joe Swale potted blue, pink, and black, and won the game four two. And mm, um, okay, it was a kind of surreal ending to what was a top quality match. And um, and uh, it can't be ignored, really, that it was it was as high quality as it was. Nobody's written it. Nobody's said it. Yeah, no column think, inches or anything like that. Eh? No, no, I think Joe Swale himself kind of alluded to it in a tweet he made, something like really enjoyed a, a really good match with Jimmy or something like that. But mm. um, that was about it. Shame, oh, okay. really. If it would have been Ronnie and Selby, I think it would have been everywhere, you know. But, um, yeah, really good game. But... The whirlwind was out of the Indian Open. Any reaction from the Jimmy White camp? And did he tweet anything uh, after the loss? No, he hasn't been active on Twitter for pretty much the amount of time that he has been swanning it around the globe on his uh, trips to Vietnam and mm. Thailand and wherever else he's been. Uh, the Philippines, I think, as well. Um, he's he's not been active for pretty much that, that period of time. So... Um, no reaction from Jimmy. Kevin, actually, his uh, his self-titled uh, Jimmy's boss, um, he texted me during the um, during my commentary, and I thought, "What's going on here? You know, he's going to be in the arena, surely. Why is he texting me, asking me what the score is, and all the rest of it?" Yeah, he was uh, stuck in Manila, the in the Philippines, because his visa didn't come through in time. Oh. So for the first time, in I, I quizzed uh, Kevin mid commentary via text. You know, when was the last time you missed a Mister Jimmy White match? You know, and he was he, he was thinking about it, and he could not recall <laughs> a time when when he did. We're talking donkey's years since the last time he hasn't been sat there in the arena watching Jimmy play. So he was sort of getting text updates from me and reading the Twitter and all the rest of it. Um, which is very much shoe on the other foot. I've had to depend on him before now when there's been a problem with the live feed or something. I've had had, uh, text conversations going the other way saying, Kevin, what's the score, you know? But, um, so this time yeah. around, he's checked your Twitter feed and you've announced there's terrorists in the buildings <laughs> and, and, and to rescue <laughs> yes. the queue. <laughs> yeah, by, by the way, Kevin, you better get Jimmy on the phone sharpish. He might have some very uh, solemn last words for you coming up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well, I'm, I'm glad in a way that he's still playing well. I still believe and he's still alive and, and he's still alive and the queue's <laughs> in good health. Uh, I, I still maintain that Jimmy White plays better 
when he's playing better people he he's got this in him to up his I game totally uh and you know and when when the other players playing shit that kind of brings out jimmy's uh sh- i wouldn't say brings out his shitness but he doesn't have the the inkling i know i know i don't want to <laughs> blasphemy blasphemy on it but do you know what i mean when the other players playing a little bit wank then that kind of affects Jimmy in a way. He doesn't perhaps feel like he has to finish him off in one go because he knows he's going to have a few more attempts, a few more bites at the cherry to finish off a frame. Um, but yeah, so but I'm glad he competed uh, and it wasn't just a, a washout for Jimmy and competed and perhaps could have gone either way by the sound of it if he's uh, if yeah, it, but all the frames are absolutely. quite tight. Okay. Could have done, and I echo your every word, you know, that when when both players are are playing well, it does bring out the best in Jimmy. He won't win all of those matches, clearly, but he will win some of them. And, um, you know, give, give me a, a, a top-level opponent playing at the top of his game uh, mm. against Jimmy, and I'm a much happier boy watching, a much more expectant guy watching, mm. than uh, if he was playing somebody somewhere near himself, actually, in the rankings, who perhaps isn't so... Um, uh, well equipped to to play well consistently, I'll take the top guy every time. It it does bring out the best in Jimmy. Okay, well, uh, so what's next for Jimmy? Um, so he's got Mark Selby coming up in the yeah. In we're talking about him playing the best, and uh, it's the world champion next. And when is that? We are, we're looking at a week on Monday, the twenty fifth of July. It's the uh, it's the qualifier for the World Open. When the draw was made and it threw up Mark Selby against Jimmy White, the uh, organisers held that match uh, over to the main event to kick the event off, um, not wanting it to sort of pale into insignificance in a qualifying arena in uh, wherever the qualifiers were, Wigan, I think. Mm. Um so they've held that over, and here we are now in uh, 10 or so days' time, a week on Monday. And uh, 7 a.m., Monday the 25th, I will be live on Twitter, as I normally am with these things. I think, I think I've think i managed to wangle the morning off work uh, in order to do that one. Brilliant. So, uh, so yeah, 7 a.m., Monday the 25th, the whirlwind against the world champion. Not to be missed. Excellent. Okay, well, I can't wait for that. Uh, I'm just gonna make sure I've got your Twitter handle right at Jimmy White Fanatic. Please let that be right. Almost bollocks. Bollocks. <laughs> is there an Ian in there? There is, isn't there? Uh, yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. Fanny in it. Well, this has got. To, I'm gonna have to do some. No, crap. it hasn't got a fanny in it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Shame, really. Yeah, it, it deserves one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to do some crafty editing on the uh, the old podcast. I can't believe I haven't got your Twitter handle. It's been a long day. I, I ran 12k today, and I feel like I. I oh, I'm complete, heck. What I did, on earth did you do that for? I did it um, two days ago as well, and I've, it's absolutely knocked the piss out of me this week. I just can't <laughs> fucking do anything. Okay, at whirlwind fan in, at whirlwind fan in, please, people, tune in uh, and get all the updates. Uh, and that time once again, Ian, is next. Monday, 7am, Monday the 25th of July. Brilliant. The whirlwind Jimmy White. Excellent. Tune in Against that. Mark, the jester from Leicester. I don't know why, because he's not very funny. Selby. And I've seen a couple of tweets from his manager, Kevin, actually, and it looks like he's on the table putting the hours in. So I don't know if those are old pictures or he's just trying to up his game, but it looks like he's focused for this one. He's, he's back in training. You know, he's taking this serious. I think... 
I think there was a period and only the the two of them really might be able to conclusively prove this but I suspect there was a period for the uh, early 2000s if you like somewhere around there to let's say 2004 to 2010 or something like that where I suspect from a severe dip in rankings defeats left right and center but more so than that an apparent lack of um, skill it's it's almost as if he'd lost his snooker ability to a point that practice had really fallen off his radar mm. but i don't think that's the case anymore i think the hours are being put in and win lose or draw you can see in the matches you know that that uh, the practice is there the photos kind of uh, prove it from kevin in the in the last few days he's definitely practicing a lot and it shows good excellent stuff Right, any um, any other Jimmy news you want to get out in before we head over to the interview? We've got the interview oh, with Chris Brereton. Well, since we last spoke, crikey, he's done the recording for the Big Fish Off, hasn't he? The ah. ITV uh, Big Fish Off, where it's him against the darts player, the one with all the bling on his fingers and around his neck. What's his name? I, I can't recall his name. Something George, and uh, Bobby George. Bobby George, that's it. Yeah, him against Bobby George in the Big Fish Off. There were a load of tweets that I retweeted back um, when that recording was taking place. I don't know who won or whatever. We'll have to wait in, until the new year when that will be shown on ITV. But yes, he, he did the recording of that. Um, and the rest of the time, I think, has been dominated by their travels to the Far East. Um, there was a exhibition he did with a load of top Thai players. Again, didn't see any... Um, media about that so i don't know how how he got on but he played tep chaya and new mm. uh the guy who can't make a 147 for <laughs> yeah yep. uh detchawat poomjang the uh nutcase from thailand he's a bit of a plonker um uh he featured in it as well uh but like i say i, I didn't see any media on that one so uh, i've got no idea how it turned out but he's been doing that recently um He's kind of never not doing something. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So uh, he's he's away now still, and um, it's been kind of a two month or so period in the Far East that I guess will conclude whenever he gets knocked out of the World Open in um, or in wins just it. over a week's time, or wins it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Cool. So um, that's the next big thing, and I suppose after that, whenever the after that may come. That's when uh, Jimmy will be back on these shores, I guess. Brilliant. Okay, cool. Well, um, maybe we'll cut in now and uh, listen to the interview that I did with Chris Brereton, the author of The Second Wind. And uh, we'll uh, listen to this and give me your feedback afterwards, yeah? A fantastic guy, Chris Brereton. <laughs> he gave me my copy of uh, of Second Wind. I think the... Release date, if I remember rightly, was the 10th of November 2014. Mm. I had mine in the post on the 7th of November. He sent it over to me, promised he'd send it to me before it appeared in the shops. I didn't ask for that. Like I've told you before, I never asked for any of the things that uh, that very kind people left, right and centre seem to send to me. But, um, but yeah, he sent me a kind... Uh, 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 kindly sent me a copy... Uh, 
with some lovely message uh, that he wrote on the inside of it. Um, yeah, top, top guy. What did the message say? Can't remember. I mean, useless, <laughs> useless, useless friend. I don't remember these lovely things that people do. Um, I know it's upstairs in the house now, so uh, I could interrupt this broadcast and go and answer that question, but I won't. Well, i tell you what, you've got plenty of time because we'll be listening to, I think it's about 20 minutes long, this interview. So uh, we'll run that and uh, we'll check in in a minute. Okie dokie. Cool. Okay, so on the line now, uh, we have Chris Brereton, author of The Second Win. The Is it an autobiography about Jimmy White, the second autobiography? Is that right, Chris? That's correct, yes. Excellent. Okay. Um, congratulations. You've uh, you put a wonderful story together. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the process, how you got involved, who approached who? Yeah, um, I work for a company called Trinity Mirror Sport Media, and we specialize in um, producing uh, a variety of different kind of publications, match day programs for football clubs, match day club magazines. But one of our biggest strands, one of the biggest areas of, of growth uh, for us is actually um, autobiographies uh, or, or books tend to be autobiographies. Some of them are biographies, but nine out of ten of them are, are autobiographies. And... Um, to be perfectly frank, I'm not actually sure who uh, who made the first advances, whether Jimmy got in touch with our business guys or our business guys approached them. Anyway, cut a long story short, as is always the case, I was called into the uh, I was called into the boss's office and uh, and he had a big grin on his face, Steve, and he said, um, you know, what do you know about snooker? And I said, you know, I really like snooker. And he asked me who my kind of favorite snooker players were. And I said, Jimmy White's probably my all-time favorite. And he said, well, you're going to be writing his book. Oh, excellent! That must be. Um, and it was yeah, it was quite a, uh, it was quite a, uh, uh, well, I was a rem- sports journalism um, is is never short of kind of providing moments where you just kind of pinch yourself and just go, my goodness me, this is in- ridiculous, and and that was just a, another in a long line of kind of, wow, I'm going to be, uh, I'm not only going to be meeting Jimmy White, I'm actually going to be um, helping him write his autobiography. It was, um, it was something to savor. It really was. Okay, so um, so how does it start then? You go to his house, you get the dictaphone out. Does he tell you stories? Do you kind of pry him, prod him in the right direction? How does it work? Yeah, um, we originally went down to the snooker centre in Gloucester where he was taking part in a, I think he was taking part in a qualification um, event. Um, it might even have been for China. I can't remember it. And it was, so we drove down from Liverpool, me and Will Beadles, our uh, business guy, and we, we drove down there and... Um, as is always the case, really, when you, you meet someone um, you've kind of watched and admired from before, it, it's got that element of kind of quite surreal at first. All of a sudden, we were having a brew in this. The, the owner's um, the owner of the, the, the Gloucester Snooker Centre's, um, I think it actually might be called the Southwest Snooker Centre. Forgive me, I'm not sure what its what its title is. Mm. We're having a brew. And next thing, Jimmy White walks in, sits down, and uh, his first question to me was. Um, like oh you know what what else have you done son you know what kind of thing and and my previous book before um I was involved with Jimmy was I was the ghostwriter for for Bruce Mwamba the footballer who had the cardiac arrest okay yeah um, the Bolton Wanderers playing um we'd come pre-armed really and I and I got a copy of the Fabrice book out my bag and, and tossed it over the desk to Jimmy and said this was the last major book I was involved in and the, the Fabrice book went um sold um particularly well particularly because of the, it was quite time sensitive for Fabrice what happened was it was important to get a good product out relatively quickly and we did that mm-hmm. so Jimmy flicked through the book um and was grinning and said he really liked it and it was it was pretty much signed sealed and delivered on that day really and then 
from there, it was um, it was a bit of a magical mystery tour because um, we started off in Epsom. Um, we started writing the book, or we started interviewing Jimmy in Epsom. Um, and then we also went with Jimmy. Well, I went with Jimmy to Tenerife for a week. Um, he was going on holiday with mm-hmm. Kelly to Tenerife for a week. And then also we went to the Paul Hunter Classic together in Firth for another five days, I think. And there was loads of times in between on the phone. But particularly, the, the way it worked is exactly as you, as you pointed out. It's a case of doing endless, endless hours of research into Jimmy White's life, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of, of hours and as many sources as you can to kind of piece together mm. um, his life away from even meeting him so that when you go to see Jimmy, you have what you consider to be a rough skeleton of the way his life is panned out and then he can obviously fill you in on the details and the emotions at any one point throughout that throughout yeah. that process, really. Uh, I guess you have the... Uh because it needs a narrative rather than just kind of a slew of memories all over mm. the shop. And you, I guess you have to join the dots in a way and give him a little starting point and go, well, can you fill it in here and tell me a little bit more about this? And we need to try and shape it and put it, I, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm just guessing that's the, uh, no, that's you've, the you've absolutely, yeah, you've absolutely nailed it. That's precisely what it is. It's, um, with books, you can decide to do them either chronologically or you can decide to do them. Well, the, the two simplest ways are to do a book chronologically. So Jimmy White was born. Jimmy White became very good. Jimmy White lost to Stephen Hendry. Jimmy White still wants to be world champion. That's the chronological way of doing it. You can also do it thematically. So you can do Jimmy White, young lad in Zanes, Jimmy White breaking through Higgins, Davis, Hendry shenanigans wants to still win the world title now what we did with this book which was the most difficult element was we combined the two we crossed those streams so to speak we crossed from chronology into a thematic style of book at times which was extremely hard to um to kind of get everything down because it's quite difficult when it's chronological as i say it's very simple just to run from a through to can you hear me okay yeah, I can hear you fine. Yeah, sorry, mate. Yeah, just cut out a little bit there. I just wanted to get all of it. So yeah, so you can, so you now crossed it thematically and uh, as well as chronologically. So that must have been a little bit tricky. Yeah, it was quite difficult to kind of piece it all together, but um, it was great, really, because Jimmy is um, J- Jimmy for all his for all his faults, whatever the, the public may think his faults are in the fast, he's nothing if not entirely frank and extremely extremely funny bloke. Um, would sit. With the um, would sit with the dictaphone running. Kev Kelly, his manager, would sometimes, well, most times, would be there and they'd be playing Kaluki across the table, and I'd just be um, throwing questions at Jimmy about his, you know, what he was getting up to when he was married to Maureen, what he was getting up to when he should have been practicing, what happened, you know, in the Gresham Hotel when he went on a tour of Ireland with Higgins, yeah, etc. And um, and Jimmy was just totally and utterly frank. Uh, he's very, very wry. He's got a very, very well-developed, um, sarcastic sense of humour and um, entirely frank. He is a man who doesn't in any way, shape or form uh, wish he'd played it any differently. And he's certainly not, um, he's certainly completely aware of his own flaws as a bloke and and he laughs them off because that, that's that's what Jimmy White does, really. So, Chris, um, how, I mean, I know his father died um, after the first book, so he, when he had the Jimmy White behind the white ball, I believe it yep. was, um, yep. his parents were still alive then, or his, his dad was at least. And I think there was, from what I gathered, a certain amount of freeance he had with this book so that he could open up a little bit more about all the stuff that really did go on, um, yep. you know, referring to a lot of the um, the addictions that he may have had at the time. 
do you think it was a, quite a relief for him, um, almost cathartic for him to actually tell this story to you, um, you know, and to tell his audience? Massively so, massively so. I think you've 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 hit the nail on the head with the word uh, cathartic. Really, um, Jimmy, when it all came out, uh, when the book was serialised in one of the national newspapers, well, I think he might have the front page. When they serialised it, Jimmy said he had phone calls from five or six people who had absolutely no idea that he'd been addicted to crack cocaine, um, and he said it was a fantastic relief just to get that out of his system. I think. I think during the first book, he was slightly more reluctant. I think I came out in 1999, if I'm not mistaken, which is only five, six years since he was at the peak of his powers. And I think he thought that perhaps coming clean then might have had a more of an adverse effect on his career, whether that be by facing sanctions or, or not. I'm not really sure, to be perfectly honest. Anyway, that was the, the, first, the first book, as great a book as it is, is, is a long time in the past now. And I think Jimmy as you say, just wanted to, was just wanted to get this off his chest. And as well, don't also forget his children now are a lot older. Mm. Um, his, his kids can now um, possibly take the fact that their dad was a crack cocaine addict a lot easier than if, if Lauren and et cetera had been, you know, four, five, six, seven, the, you know, the playground taunts that they taunts that they may have got at the turn of the century are obviously now something in the past. Although Tommy's still a young lad, Tommy's got broad shoulders. So, I mean, he can take anything that any criticism of his dad, I should imagine. And also, I mean, he's older himself. I can, and he doesn't drink anymore. He said in the book, um, like he only has the odd one, like every, yeah. every now and again, but he's drinking orange juice these days. And he perhaps, I imagine he's looking back on that, like another life, you know, the, like you do when you get older and you shed a few skins, you look back and go, well, this isn't really me, but this is what I was doing at the time. So perhaps it's a little easier for him as time's gone on to talk about it a bit freely. Uh, I don't really have a question here, but that's, that's just the, yeah, just me yeah right. probably that's, that's, you know, that's, you, you know, I, Jimmy, Jimmy, there's, all, there's always going to be a Peter Pan element to Jimmy. Um, he's always going to be a man who, who globetrots. He's always going to be a man who, who looks to travel and to play exhibitions and to meet the public. Um, he would be the first to tell you he's never done a proper day's work in his life, just as he likes it. Uh, you know, snooker, he considers snooker to be a hobby that's, that's repaid him many millions of times, literally probably millions of times over financially speaking. Um, so yeah, he, he's, he kind of, he doesn't look back, um, on his time, um, boozing and, and kind of carousing and taking drugs with any element of, of regret or uh, he's quite philo- philosophical about it. He's the first to admit that if it had got his head down, particularly during the late eighties and early nineties, he'd have probably been a more formidable opponent to Davis, but Jimmy White loses absolutely no sleep about anything he's done in his life, guaranteed. He's often cited as someone that's never won the world championship and you kind of have this connotation of Jimmy White always losing, but he did win every other tournament in the game. He did beat Stephen Hendry at the Crucible on a couple of occasions and in other tournaments. It was just pretty much in the final that Stephen Hendry had his number. Well, when when we went to the Paul Hunter Classic um, in Firth, um, we had to we had to go quite a convoluted way. We had to go via Switzerland. The flights were really bad, so on we flew from um, we flew from Heathrow, and we sat in the bar in Heathrow. I was having a beer, 
there and Jimmy was having, I think Jimmy had a beer that day actually. I was having a beer at the bar and I, was, I, was, I thought, right, this is, we've got a couple of hours now before the flight. I'll get him to talk about the finals he lost to, to Henry. Bang, 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 all the finals. And it'll be interesting. I, I was slightly apprehensive about it because I thought if there's going to be any part of the book that'll be quite tough for me to wriggle answers out of Jimmy, it will be those finals. And I, you know, I can guarantee you, I sat in that bar with Jimmy and asked him some fairly awkward and brusque questions about his mental setup during those finals, how he approached those finals, etc. And Jimmy did not bat an eyelid. In fact, he's so blasé and he's so relaxed about the finals that I had to remind him which final was which, mm. which final was he 14-8 up, which final was the missed black, which final did Hendry steamroll him, which final did he not come out of the, um, not come out of the, the gates fast enough against mm. Parrot. Mm. Jimmy has totally and utterly it complete peace with him to the, as I say, to the extent that he was going, hang on a sec, mate, which one was that 93 or 94? Or hang on. Was that 91 or was that 94? Mm. He is totally and utterly, um, at peace with that. And, and the, I think the, the most ironic thing about Jimmy is, you know, there's always been a question mark about his, his mental strength or his temperament publicly that, that you know, he's all, if anyone bottles it these days, apparently they've done the Jimmy White of darts or the Jimmy White yeah, of netball. Or that's, the Jimmy a, that's White. a horrible thing. I hate seeing that sort of stuff. Well, I, I, I tend to flip that argument on its head and say, if, if you've met Jimmy or if you've read the book, the amount of mental strength it actually takes to be able to continue to live your life without any rancor or any bitterness or any regret or any self-pity on the back of losing six world titles. The mental strength it takes to do that, I would argue, is a hell of a lot more. And it's, it shows this, the depths of his mental strength that he can get out of bed. There'd be players, and I'd probably include myself. Hello? Yeah. Sorry. You're saying that, that there would be players, um, there would be players who would lose one, two, three, four world titles, and that would see them sink. They would never be able to you know, get out of bed in the morning um, due to the kind of the amount they would beat themselves up about that. Jimmy gets out of bed, lives a fantastic life, lives a healthy, fantastic life with a family that he loves, doing a job that he loves around the world with probably the biggest fan base of any snooker player ever. Jimmy, Jimmy, he's six world titles. Of course, it'd be great if he'd won one of them. Of course, it would be great if he's won six of them. But he's not gonna, he's not gonna spend the rest of his life, you know, in kind of in a straitjacket, worrying about it by any stretch, stretch of the imagination. And that's why I say I think that does show. Uh, a hell of a lot of, of of mental strength to be able to to do that. Mm. Yeah, uh, no, that's really well put. I entirely agree with that. And it's um, I just got a couple more things because I know you've got to probably crack on, Chris. But the uh, okay. in the book, I just when he's talking about his brother, especially, and uh, the story about him t- going to the morgue and getting his brother's body, <laughs> and then having uh. that final drink with him in his house, and then the police coming around and saying, "Look, you need to get your." brother back to the morgue i mean when he's telling you this story are you kind of like dropping your jaw and are the moments where he's just telling you stuff and you just simply can't believe what's coming out of his mouth yeah all the time every five seconds jimmy would tell you a story (laughs) that would be absolutely ludicrous the the thing about the thing about and that story is a case in point jimmy has lived jimmy has lived a life that is so ridiculously unorthodox that nobody else can really get a handle on it or a grasp on where he's coming from. Um, when you're watching dogs being strangled by criminals in Zans when you're 12 years of age, when you've not been to school since you were about 10, 
when you've been hustling with dodgy Bob up and down the country um, from the age of 10, 11, 12, whatever it was. Jimmy White's frame of reference for what is con- what constitutes normal is so far removed from, from anything that we have even got the faintest idea about. I, I'll give you a great example. I rang Barry Hearn um, to ask him, because Barry was obviously his, um, his manager during a brief period in the 80s when he was one of the matchroom mob. Mm. And I rang Barry and I was talking to Barry and then halfway through the conversation, Barry went, he's told you about the speedboat, hasn't he? And this was halfway through the conversation. Mm-hmm. Barry had given me loads of great stories. And I went, sorry, Barry, just rewind that a sec, mate. What do you mean? And he said, uh, has he told you about the speedboat? I went, no, no. What are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about, speedboat. So, so Barry then told the tale that's in the book about Jimmy sinking a speedboat in Hong Kong <laughs> Harbor. Um, now, for me... I went back to Jimmy the day after or, or a couple of days after when we met up and I said, Jimmy, Jimmy, mate, what's this about a speedboat in Hong Kong Harbour? And he was playing Kaluki at the time and he looked up and he went, oh, yeah, he said, I've forgotten about that. No, <laughs> I'm sorry, but if I've sunk a speedboat in Hong Kong Harbour, that would be my number one anecdote yeah. for all time. You know, I'd be telling that every five minutes in the pub to my mates at stag do's, what have you. <laughs> Jimmy White's lived a life that is so ridiculous that – he can sink a speedboat in Hong Kong Harbour and completely and utterly forget all about it. That's the scale of, of kind of, um, of, of just that's how random his life has been, really. So the story about his brother is just one of dozens where I've sat there and gone, I can't believe what I'm hearing. This is, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Well, I mean, it must have been quite an orgy of stories that you probably had a lot of stuff that you cut out. I mean, I can only imagine that there's, only a certain amount of stuff like that you can put into a book before you go, do you know what this book needs? I need to draw a line in the sand somewhere. Otherwise I'm going to be writing this damn thing forever. Do you have yeah, a, I, I, uh, sorry, go on, go on. sorry, make one. Um, I was just going to ask, have you been approached to have it um, published into a film, written up into a, any kind of feature? I mean, I'm constantly reading this, page turning it and thinking someone needs to put this on the screen at some point. It would be extremely nice. Um, not to not to my knowledge, um, we would as a company, as I say, not to my knowledge, have we been approached. It does feel very. Um, I mean, I watched that one on BBC Four. What I can't remember what it was called uh, about the rack pack. The rack pack about rack four pack. months ago, something like yeah. that. Five yeah. months ago, and thoroughly enjoyed that. I thought that was a fantastic um, mm. dramatization of, of. Let's be honest, the halcyon era of, of snooker. It was, although the, the standard of snooker now, of course, is on a different planet to, to the standard of snooker in the eighties. If you look at how many breaks are made, how many century breaks are made, how many one four sevens are made, etc. But in terms of um, the characters back then, the housewives' favourites, Cliff, um, Dennis obviously Alex, obviously Jimmy, etc. cetera. Um, the Terry's of this world, even Tony Mio, you know, half the matchroom mob um, were kind of, was the most famous guys in the country at the time, mm. sportsmen in the country. That side of the game's obviously faded a little bit now. Um, but the, 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 the rack pack I did think did show there is potential scope for, for these kind of um, books to be, um, to be made into films. But as, to say there are no there are no plans as we as I sit here now for that to happen unfortunately. Okay, well I hope you get the call soon because I uh, I'd love to see something like that. I mean Jimmy was barely featured in that, which um, I, I know it was pretty much from the from Alex's perspective and him yeah. versus Davis and a lot of that, which was the narrative. Uh, but it would have been nice to see a bit more of the Jimmy Alex relationship played in there somewhere. Um, so I, I definitely think there's room for another. Did you um, get Jimmy's point of view from that, by the way, of what you thought of that? Have you spoke to him since? Uh, do you know what? Such is, the, such is the speed of this industry, really, and such is Jimmy's um, 
ever ongoing tour of the world. Um, I've not spoke to him for about a couple of months, maybe two or three months. Mm-hmm. Um, when we do speak, we always, you know, we have a, it's very brief. Jimmy, Jimmy's not great on the phone. Jimmy's not a great phone man. He's, he's, he's better in person. He's right. far better. Um, uh, so no, I've not spoke to him for a, a fair while, actually. Um, I don't know what his thoughts on that. Were. I mean, in the book, I think, I think there's obviously there's a lot of levity in the book um, because you've got to fit in these insane stories. But I think the, the two parts of the book for me that are the best, arguably, are the stuff on the crack cocaine because mm. he's absolutely ice cold serious, and also the um, the chapter on Higgins as well. Um, Jim, Jimmy idolised him totally. I mean, yeah. this is all you know. Everyone knows this anyway. But to sit opposite Jimmy. And listen to Jimmy talking about the things they tried to do to get his teeth fixed, the things they tried to do to try and um, basically save Higgins from being Higgins um, and the futility and watching Higgins um, continue to deteriorate. And then Jimmy's devastation at watching, you know, and finding out that that Alex had, had unfortunately passed away. Um the power, I can still see when Jimmy mentioned, I can still see Jimmy now we're in his house in Epsom. When I when I got onto Higgins, and you know, four or five years later, he, he's still visibly kind of upset um, by the loss of you know of of his all time kind of hero, really. Mm, and I just love the way that you you put that at the end of the book. Again, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but it's it's not like a film, and people will know that you'll talk <laughs> about Alex Higgins at some point. But all the way from reading through the book, it kind of flits with little bits of Higgins, I think, and then the core and the bulk is just saved for the encore you know the the yeah. last uh, the last act really is um him yeah. reminiscing about alex uh, chris have you just got time for just a couple more questions just very quickly? yeah it's fine mate. go on cool. that's not a problem at all um obviously i've got um my friend ian jimmy white fanatic on twitter so he's um in cahoots with you and that's i think that's how we joined the dots on this and he's got a couple of questions so okay he'd skin me if i didn't ask you so um i think it was a tournament in germany that chris went to with jimmy at the time yeah um uh, did you did how did he get on with the tournament? How was he was that when you spent time with him? It was great. It was in <laughs> it was I say we, we I, there was two particular breaks. One was in Tenerife where Jimmy's got a place. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went to um, I went and booked myself into a hotel just around the corner from Jimmy's place, and then spent uh, two or three hours with him every day. Sat out in the sunshine, um, or even better, there was one afternoon that was. Um, full validation as to why I became a sports journalist really um, because the hours are long and it can be pretty tough at times but this one day proved to me that it was better than being an accountant when I sat in <laughs> Jimmy's kind of Jimmy had has this kind of underground man cave bar where I sat interviewing one of my all-time heroes playing pool with him while Jimmy was pouring me um, pints of kind of Spanish lager ice cold Spanish oh, lager behind the bar what a dream and I was just thinking, do you know what? This, this, it's all paid off. Ten yeah. years of struggle to become a journalist. I've, I've definitely, um, this is where I kind of, this was why, this is why I did it. So that was great in Tenerife. I got loads of stuff out of him there. And then the first trip um, was for the Paul Hunter Classic. As I say, the flights were quite dodgy. Um, we had to fly to Switzerland for Zurich first, and then on to Germany. Um, and it was, it was really good because. Um, the flights were two hours to Zurich, two hours then to, to Firth. So for four hours, effectively, I was plonked next to Jimmy with my dictaphone out and he couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, I had him entirely to myself. I had him at his most kind of arguably his most focused throughout this entire procedure. Um, we both sat on this flight sipping Diet Cokes. And that's when I got the, the crack cocaine information mm-hmm. out of him. 
Brilliant. Um, so the, the flights to Germany were, were brilliant. During the tournament, of course, Jimmy was slightly more focused on um, on the obviously trying to qualify. Um, but the min, I don't think I think I don't think he qualified. I can't remember who he played. Um, I know I had, I was I had a conversation with Anthony Hamilton and Tony Drago about their um, their kind of recollections of Jimmy. What is interesting? What is very interesting is when you're in the green room with the other snooker players, um, Murphy was there, Anthony Hamilton was there, Jude was there, um, I don't think Mark was there, Tony was, Tony Drago was there, Jimmy's still their all-time hero. Oh, Jimmy is still. They sit, I was sat on. I sat next to Anthony Hamilton, and we're having lunch. And I was like, "Have you got any stories about Jimmy?" Um, blah 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 blah. Mm. And it gave me one actually that, that that made its way into the book. And um, and then you're talking about says so, you know so so and they're like the man's a legend. The longevity on tour alone. Forget his tournaments. Forget the way he's lived his life. The fact he's still out there, still doing the yards, still trying to qualify because he mm. loves snooker. They all. Um, you know, the full of full of admiration for him, all of them. Well, that's brilliant. Chris, I could actually talk to you for hours, mate, but um, I'm sure you've got other stuff to do. <laughs> um, okay, the, no worries. The, the book, Jimmy White, The Second Wind by Chris Brereton. Are you on Twitter at all, mate? I am. I'm at Chris Brereton one um, so anyone who wants to know anything else or anything like that, just come and say hello and that shouldn't be a problem. Excellent. That's Chris, B-R-E-R-E-T-O-N. Yeah? Yep. Cool. That's the right. Brilliant. All right, mate. Um, well, hopefully there'll be a third book. Uh, maybe all the stuff off the cutting room floor or, <laughs> or the <laughs> stories the that he remembers. He, hopefully it'll be the one where he beats Selby at the Crucible. That'd be nice. Oh, that'd I'd be, be very happy to write that. Well, he's got Selby coming up in the uh, Riga, I believe, hasn't he? So, yes. Yeah, he has. So fingers crossed so, for that. But fingers. Uh, thanks for giving up your time, Chris. And uh, take care, mate. And I hope to speak to you soon. No worries. Thanks a lot. Speak to you soon. Cheers, Chris. Bye-bye. So Chris Brereton there. What an absolute do it. He had actually um, an infinite amount of time for me, which was great because I, I was texting him up until this point and saying, look, when can I get you? And he's like, oh, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. But I actually kept him on the phone for probably about 25, 30 minutes out of all that. Mm. And I, I felt I could have just chewed his ear off for hours, but I had to let the poor boy go at some point. Um, <laughs> so what do you think of that? Oh, top stuff, top stuff. The, the anecdotes of being in Tenerife and in Germany and... What what got me almost more so was not the fact that he went on holiday with Jimmy and um, and Kelly uh, to Tenerife, but the fact that Jimmy and Kelly go on holiday together. I had no idea of this fact. Mm. That, that I've never seen sort of anything about them doing anything together very much. You don't see any any sort of pictures anymore. I think you did more so when they first got together, but yes. The fact that uh, they had this threesome holiday um, was uh, was very insightful. And um, the bit that I was most sort of impressed with was towards the beginning of that chat with Chris, where he said um, he was making reference to Jimmy's sort of soundness of mind, strength of character. Mm. And uh, if, if there's three things I keep reading and hearing in the social media world, wherever. It's sort of, in no particular order, one, what a player Jimmy is, was, whichever. Uh, Two, that he's synonymous with failure. Mm. And B, uh, and uh, three, that um, he's a bottler. Mm. 
And I echo absolutely everything that Chris Brereton just said about those latter two. This, this Jimmy White is a failure and he's a bottler. Anyone who spends any amount of time with this man, and you, you will no doubt come to this conclusion yourself when we, uh, when we go and see him in a, in when, whenever it happens, um, that he is anything but. There is no more self-confident individual on the planet than Jimmy White. Make no mistake about it. He, he is absolutely not those two things. He, he has lost those world finals, for sure. But for me, it's not a failure that he didn't win them. It's a remarkable thing that he came as close as he did, mm. considering the lifestyle he has, uh, considering the, the life full of madness, as Chris Brereton's just alluded to. This guy ain't a failure or a bottler. He got as close as he did to winning that world title so many times by the strength of his character. Yeah. He didn't win it because of a lack of one. Yeah, no, I totally Simple agree as that. with that. And he didn't not win it because. And of he that. met he met like a guy who was just in the form of his life that nobody could beat. By the way, nobody could get to the final and beat him. I mean, yeah, I think he lost to Doherty maybe. In one final, Ebden and uh, Ebden, yeah, but yeah. I mean, we're talking about he gets a bit that man, but, annoyingly. <laughs> we're talking, <laughs> you're not an Ebden fan, Ebden, who? <laughs> Why don't you like Ebden again? <laughs> oh, Jesus, Did what he... a smarmy, horrible go be a vegan, everybody. You're a twat if you're not a vegan, you know. <laughs> shut, up. shut up, man. Go uh, crawl under a rock somewhere and play boring snooker for yourself. I Do you guess know what I mean? Nobody wants to see it. I guess but apart won't... from that, he's a lovely guy. We won't be getting uh, Ebden on the podcast any Sorry, Peter Ebden <laughs> and any Peter Ebden fans. Um, but yeah. Cut that bit out. Um, <laughs> but, but I mean, just for me, the the, the bit where he, he talks to Barry Hearn and just says... Barry goes, oh, did he tell you about the time he sunk the speedboat in uh, Hong Kong? And then he has to go back to Jimmy and go, you left a bit out of the story. And it was that bit where you sunk a speedboat. Uh, I just think that's that's just quite amazing, isn't it? That you can just leave something like that out. It's just kind of an insight to how every day and every trip, every tournament, every character that's been in his life, he's got a story to tell about something that's happened there. And there'll be many, many others besides mm. the speedboat one that yeah. ha- have just fallen into the big black hole in Jimmy's mind of forgotten yeah, things. Exactly, you know, exactly. I, I remember one thing that I don't think features in Second Wind off the top of my head. Um, the day he smacked a cue ball, uh, a snooker ball, really, really hard into the face of Rod Stewart's wife, Penny <laughs> Lancaster. Uh, Lan- Penny Lancaster, yeah, yeah. You're joking. Uh, absolutely smacked her in the face with a snooker ball. Um because they <laughs> were having they were having some um get together, shall we say, Rod Stewart, Ronnie Wood, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Jimmy White, their respective mm-hmm. wives and girlfriends and what have you. It all got a little bit out of hand. There was some row between uh Jimmy and Rod, I believe. And um and the upshot of the row was Jimmy ended up clobbering Penny Lancaster with a snooker ball in the face. And what? Um, what in a sock? Like a, like something out of a no, prison? No, 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 no. Um, I, I think he was sort of. Uh, it, they would be able to tell you more on this if he can remember. Mm. Um, but I, I think wherever I read it, it's on some um, newspaper cutting somewhere from years ago. I can't remember exactly where. 
Um, but I, I think the ins and outs where they were mid-row, Jimmy was on the table. In, I think this was all happening in uh, Ronnie Wood's house, by the way. Jimmy was on the snooker table in uh, Ron, Ron's um, snooker room. And they were sort of mid-row, and he just sort of whacked one in frustration, if you see what I mean. And it just flew and uh, smacked Penny right in the face. Um, I don't <laughs> think the day he clobbered Penny Lancaster in the face with a snooker ball features in Second Wind either. Whether mm. they can even remember it, I don't know. But there will be many, many others as well. The speedboat is just the the tip of the iceberg, I think. You know? Yeah, well, I can't wait for... The triple wind, wherever that will be. <laughs> the triple wind. That's a bad case of wind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a visit to the doctors, really, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so uh, what we got next? We've got the, uh, so a little bit of snooker news in general. So a, a roundup of the tournament, um, how everyone else played, everyone else, obviously, the tournament's still going. No, it's over now. This bit will be very brief from me, probably a, a good thing because I do waffle too much, but... My interest in these tournaments does tend to dissipate when uh, when Jimmy is no longer in it, so I don't know the ins and outs, but it was won by a little ginger-haired fella who, in more ways than just his gingerhood, replicates a sort of young Steve Davis, um, Anthony McGill. He uh, did well at the World Championships uh, of last year, I think. He sort of very much came to sort of public knowledge in that event. He won his first world ranking title this week, the Indian Open. Um, Who did he beat? Can't, can't. I knew you were about to ask that. But <laughs> yeah, I, I should. I should know a little bit. Uh, oh, who was it? It's in the no, paper. It's, it's even in the it's paper gone. today. I should have read it. Really. Pro- probably. Yeah. It's. Um, it's gone. I can't remember who. People can but, tune into um, the tune into the podcast podcast to figure yeah. that one out. Go, go watch and listen to proper <laughs> snooker fans yeah. to know this shit because I ain't got a clue. Um, but they, yeah, the, they do the a good job over there. They do a good job. They do. They do. They, they're proper snooker aficionados. Yeah. I I just watch a popular piss head for a living. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I just um, watch you watching him. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but uh, but yes, the one thing that sort of stuck in my mind from the Indian Open, as Jimmy aside, was yet again, for God knows how many a tournament in a row, we had an older guy uh, going very, very deep in the event. We had Alan McManus in the World Championship reaching mm-hmm. the semi-finals back in uh, April, May. And uh, in this event, it was the 1995... World Championship runner-up, Nigel Bond. Oh, who, brilliant. Uh, again, reached the semi-finals. Um, I think he lost to whoever the runner-up of the tournament was, whose name I can't remember. Um, but yeah, a great run from Bond. Again, further pr- I've made the point before, further proof that these older guys, that the snooker-wise, there is nothing you know, to separate them from the younger bucks. Uh, they can still do the business, and it, it proves it again. Jimmy's time will come. Absolutely. It will be one of these events. Cool. Well, let's hope so. Uh, there's no reason why you shouldn't, really. I mean, it's not like a boxing match, is it? I think we might have alluded to this before. When you get past the age of 40, you can't win Wimbledon anymore. When mm. you get to the age of 50, maybe you shouldn't be fighting for a world title. But, you know, mm. you can cruise on a little bit into your 50s and still put a cue for a ball. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or Penny G- Lancaster's Jimmy... face. <laughs> or Penny Lancaster's face, yeah, yeah. Uh, G- Jimmy has repeatedly said, as long as his eyes are okay, 
he will continue to be able to pop balls and make century breaks. Uh, he's, you know, it's the one thing I think from a professional snooker playing perspective, it's the one thing he's worried about losing is uh, a, a, a good sort of clear sense of vision. Um, and I think he's got a point there, you know, an, an element of physical fitness and stamina, particularly for the longer best of 19 matches in the in the world championship and what have you. That, yeah, sure, that comes in. But um, but no, it's the eyes, I, I think. And uh, as long as you still have that, you can be a match for anyone still. Absolutely. Yeah, good stuff. OK, cool. Well, uh, I think we might just seamlessly segue into a book reading here as we... Wanted to get this feature up and running, and what better time than we had the Chris Brereton interview? So, a little Looking bit of forward a, to this. <laughs> forward to this. A little bit of a reading from, uh, as we discussed earlier. Mama, some... <laughs> we love you. I said to Mum, I said I need you on the podcast, and she goes, "What's a podcast?" And uh, I said, All right, don't." <laughs> I said, "Don't worry, just talk into this microphone." So. Yeah. Um, She's going to read, and by the way, she read on for like another half an hour. I I had to cut Did it. She? Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> no, she was going through the whole damn book, and I was looking at my watch, going because I pointed out a couple of pages for her to read, and yeah. and I think she just skipped past the marker and went on and went on and <laughs> crack. It could have released like a box set of that. Anyway, um, so here it is, uh, a little bit from what we discussed earlier in the interview about. Um, the time when Jimmy went and got his brother from the morgue and had that oh, sit-down talk. Oh, brother story. Um, so it's, a, it's an amazing story. It's kind of got a little bit of everything, sadness, happiness. It's just it's an incredible, incredible event. So um, we'll uh, read that passage now and uh, over to you, Mum. <laughs> okay. Everyone has their heroes in life. People like Muhammad Ali, John McEnroe and Alex Higgins have been among my biggest role models because of their style, their presence and the way they played their sports. And closer to home, my eldest brother Martin was my hero as well. I was the baby of the family and Martin was a good 20 years older than me and as a result he'd always looked out for me. You couldn't have dreamt of a better brother. As a kid, mum used to send him into Zans to kick me out and drag me home. But don't forget, it was Martin who first let me play with him on a table and he played a big part in my early snooker career, even if he did try and actually stop it at one point. For my 12th birthday, he came up to me with a simple offer. Jimmy, what do you want, a bike or a snooker cue? Mum and Dad thought I should be outside a bit more rather than clogging my lungs up in a smoky snooker hall with Tony Mio. I opted for the bike because then I got the best of both worlds, I had my own set of wheels, plus I could always nip into Zans and use anyone's queue when they weren't in there. Most of the time I borrowed the queue of a bloke called John Nielsen, who had no idea I'd been using it until I told him about 20 years later. Anyway, I got my brand new racing bike from Martin, and I was as proud as anything. I could now race around Tooting as one of the bike boys. But before I could do that, I fancied a quick frame in Zans. I padlocked the bike up outside the front door, went inside, and before you know it, one quick frame had become about 15. I finally left in the early hours and walked outside to see my bike's padlock on the floor, broken, with my bike nowhere to be seen. That was the end of my riding days there and then. I stuck to Zans after that, and isn't it strange how you get to crossroads in your life without even knowing it? 
In early 1995, we were dealt some devastating news. Martin had got lung cancer. I just couldn't get my head around it. I simply couldn't process the idea that my big, tough, fantastic brother could have a shitty thing like cancer. To be honest, I'm still in shock now, and it's been almost 20 years. I'll never forget where I was when the thought of him actually dying first took hold. When it went from being a no to a maybe. We were all in the White Lion at Wimbledon, at my Uncle Winky's funeral. All the family were sat about, suited up and sharing stories about what a character Uncle Winky had been. He was one of my dad's four brothers. He took no shit off anybody and was a fantastic man. As we were having a few drinks and toasting his life, my brother Tommy turned to me and my other brother, Tony, and told us what he thought about Martin's health. Look at him, he said. I don't think he's going to make it. I think he's going to die. Martin had been having a lot of treatment and was very thin and frail. He was being helped to the toilet when Tommy gave us his opinion and as we looked across at him, his suit just hung from his frame. Before that moment, I'd never for a second thought he wouldn't pull through. Cancer doesn't care though, does it? It doesn't look into a person's character before deciding whether they will live or die. It just does what it wants and takes who it wants. I suppose Tommy's words cut through the denial I was in and finally hit home. He was right as well. Martin died a month later. We were more devastated than I will ever be able to tell you. He was a very smart guy, very dashing, and he lived his life exactly as he wanted to. Martin's favourite working method was to get his head down for, for three to four weeks, and then he'd take a week off to go to the races. He loved the track at Wimbledon, and he loved life, full stop. The grief of him passing away was like nothing I've ever experienced before. Those of you reading this, who've lost loved ones, know what I mean. It's this blackness and this anger, especially because he was so young. There was nothing we could do for him, but at least wanted to give him a send-off that he deserved. The night before the funeral, we all crammed into the Jolly Gardeners on Garrett Lane for a drink, a game of cards and a farewell to our brother. All the family were there and we managed to put away £4,600 worth of booze. We had a massive drink until about three in the morning, but as we were leaving the pub, I didn't want the night to end. So, properly pissed, I got my driver, Mick, and sister Jackie to walk to the funeral home where Martin was lying. Mick was a good bloke. He's dead now, and he used to run me around everywhere. The funeral home was across the road from the pub, and I couldn't stand it any longer. Mick, wait here a second, I said, and was off to the funeral home's gate. These massive gates were locked up with this big padlock, and I kung fu kicked it out of temper, and it just opened as easy as that. I was full of drink, full of anger, and I had just gone in the head, as it started to hit me that Martin was dead. The chains around the padlock were obviously not actually locked up, they were just meant to look that way. I took that as a sign and walked through. Jackie came in after me, and I started looking for my brother in this funeral home. We walked around for a bit until I finally found him, our Martin. Well, I looked at him and decided there and then that he looked like he could do with a drink. So I got him out of his coffin and started to walk him back to the car. 
He'd been dressed for the funeral, but he didn't have his hat on. I found his hat, stuck it on his head, lifted him onto my shoulder and walked out with him. Jimmy, what are you doing? Mick asked in shock. He knew me well enough not to push it. I was beyond devastated and beyond furious that Martin was dead. Mick took one look at me and guessed there was no point trying to get me to put Martin back. Mick eventually helped me out and stuck Martin in the front seat of the car. Mick, take us to Tommy's house, I said, and off we set for my brother's house. Tommy had left the wake a few hours before. Him and Martin were very close. Tommy lived in Cheam, which was a ten-mile drive, and we knocked on the front door with Martin propped up underneath my shoulder. Jim, Tommy said when he saw us. What are you doing? What the fuck are you doing? We're going to have a drink with Martin, I said. We need a last drink with him. And so that's what we did. We plonked him down in the corner, talking to him, crying, laughing, sometimes hysterical with laughter, sometimes hysterical with anger, chatting shit, playing cards and saying our goodbyes. The last Martin would want is us to be upset, I kept saying. He'd be pissing himself laughing watching all this. It was one of the strangest nights of my life. I was completely gone emotionally and I thought I was losing it. I suppose I must have done a little bit because getting a body out of a funeral home is not exactly normal, is it? But you do mad things in grief, I suppose. We sat around with Martin for a couple of hours until it freaked Mick out. I'm off, Jimmy, he said. I'm sorry, mate, but I can't cope with all this. Mick upped and left, and that meant we had a problem getting Martin back to the funeral parlour. Eventually, Tommy's wife called a cab, and me and Jackie prepared to take my older brother back. We propped Martin up between us, flagged down the cab outside, and tried to get Martin in the back. Are you sure your friend is okay? The cabbie asked me. He doesn't look very well. What do you say to that? Me and Jackie just started laughing. Don't you worry, mate. He's just having a little sleep, I said. He'll be fine in a bit. We headed back to the funeral home with Martin sleeping on my shoulder. And when we got back, it was exactly as we left it. The gates were still wide open. The door was wide open. Nothing had changed. We put him back where he should be, chained it all up and prepared to say goodbye the next day. The funeral went as well as these things can. It was a lovely service and we said goodbye to Martin again, although in a church this time, not in the back of a London cab. I thought nothing else of it until two weeks later when I got a knock on the front door and two coppers were stood there. Mr James White, they said. We're here to arrest you for breaking and entering and removing a dead body without permission. I thought I was fucked, but these two coppers then got around to digging me out of a hole. You didn't do it, did you, Mr White? This one geezer said, shaking his head, making sure I understood where he was coming from. There's no way you did it, is there, Mr White? It's just a rumour, isn't it? I don't know what you're talking about, I told them, playing the game. I didn't do anything. That was all I heard of it because someone in the police must have realised it was an emotional time. I've had plenty of run-ins with the police but I've always respected them and tried to do benefit evenings for them whatever else because I understand how hard their job is and after that little incident 
my respect for them grew even stronger. Martin was a beautiful, beautiful human being, and it was a privilege to have laid, had him as an older brother. If you look on the left side of my chest, I don't have the name Martin tattooed on it. I have the name Nitram, so that when I'm having a shave in the mirror in the morning, I can read his name, say hello and tell him I love him. As if losing Martin wasn't bad enough, there was more heartache to come for our family soon after. Just a few months after Martin had gone in October 1995, Mum passed away. Make no mistake, she died of a broken heart. Mum brought up five kids. My dad was always working or he liked to be out and about and she did everything. She bathed us, fed us and got us to school. That's how life was in those days. Her passing so close after Martin's totally, totally crushed us all. You don't realise what your family means to you until you lose people so close to you. My mum was my best friend. She was like my sister. When I was a kid, I used to go home and I'd think nothing of seeing half a dozen women sat in the front room, rollers in their hair and a fag on the go. These weren't coffee mornings either. These women would be sat there slagging their husbands. I adored my mum. She was the most beautiful person. If you met her, then you always remembered her. She had problems with her lungs in the end and lived with Jackie as it became clear she wouldn't pull through. We went from looking she She went from looking like a frail seventy year old to a really old woman very quickly. Jackie was the woman of the firm, so Mum went to her house for a fight for her final days. In the end it was a blessing that she could go and join Martin. To see Mum and Dad suffer and watch them going through the pain they did when they lost their eldest son was awful. Who wants to live longer than their own kids? It was too dreadful for words. We scattered Mum and Martin's ashes together at Sandown Racecourse. Martin used to love a gamble. It runs in the family then. And we sponsored a race. All got together and remembered the two of them in the best possible way. There we go. How about that? Thank you, Mum. For... Well done, Mum. Well done, Mum. <laughs> Uh, I'll get Not in touch. Stuff. I'll get in touch with Chris Barrett and then see if she he needs her for the audio book. <laughs> <laughs> She's very available in that sense. Your mum. Yeah. Had... <laughs> yes, <laughs> better get that in quick. Your uh, your mum has such a foul potty mouth. I know. How uh, dare she swear so much? I know. Oh, and did you know? She goes, Pete. Can you cut out the bit where I said 147? <laughs> so she she didn't say one four seven, but she said one hundred and forty seven. That's how far she is. <laughs> and I've got. But she's a fan, isn't she? She, she is. is a she's a big Jimmy fan, isn't she, your mum? Well, the whole house has grown up um, snooker addicts. My dad's a Davis fan, huge Davis fan. My brother, Jimmy oh, White fan. Um, dad, well, what, what are you doing? We've all got to have our vices, haven't we? I suppose. Um, <laughs> but you know, snooker was massive in our house. I guess that's why we're we're. Kin- kindred spirits in that way, mate. We're we're both into our uh, into our snooker, into our Jimmy. Good work. Good work. So, so we'll move seamlessly on from there, and we'll finish off with what we like to do uh, is watch a bit of Jimmy on YouTube. <laughs>
I'll hand it over to you to introduce right. this one. Okay, yeah. We uh, we spoke previously about these vid commentaries, didn't we? And we said uh, there's got to be some sort of running theme here. And we um, we decided to marry up these anniversaries that I tweet about with the vid commentary where possible, i.e. if uh, this week was, a I don't know, a 30th anniversary of Jimmy, Jimmy winning one particular title or something, we will hone in on that for the vid commentary and uh, we have a case of that this week uh, yesterday I think it was I tweeted that it was the 32nd anniversary of Jimmy winning the Winfield Masters which happened over in New Zealand uh, in 1984 it was Jimmy against Kirk Stevens the Canadian a 22 year old Jimmy White He's still in the early stages of his career, really. He turned pro in 1980. He had a, a little bit of success in 1981. He won a couple of tournaments in 81, but then won nothing in 82 or 83. It was 84 that became his serious breakthrough year. He won the Masters at the beginning of the year, and he won four tournaments in all in, the, in, uh, in that year of 84. And this was the second tournament out of the four that he won. And uh, we're going to look at frame six. Kirk Stevens had opened up a 2-0 lead. It was first to five for the title. Um, Jimmy had responded with a frame to make it 2-1. 2-2 uh, then. Jimmy leveled with a 108 break. Uh, Kirk took the fifth frame to lead 3-2. And we join it in frame six. Are you ready? Excellent. Uh, just before we kick off, if you want to watch the video with us, then head over to the show notes, which will be published on uh, the Human Research website. So it's www.humanresearch.xyz. Click on the podcast tab at the top and you'll see all the show notes of everything that we spoke about today. Uh, and when you are ready, we'll do the three, two, one countdown and everyone Here we can... Go. Three. Trusted phone in hand, ready uh, to go. Excellent. Okay, so three, two, one, then go, yeah? Three, two, one, then go. I'm happy with that. Okay, go. And it's Jimmy White to break. Here we go. Jimmy has broken. Once again, square the match. And straight away, you've probably detected that on the commentary on the video, it's whispering Ted Lowe. Sadly, no longer with us, but it's him on the commentary. So Jimmy's broken. The white ball is tight up against the back cush, which isn't always the case for Jimmy when he breaks, but uh, he's had a good one there. Kirk in his white shoes and... Uh, God, he looks a dapper gent. He's gentleman. a sexy beast, isn't he? I'd, I must admit, I would. I would. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Look, look it. So he's down, having a go now. I think he's going for a safety here. Roll it up onto the bottom cush behind the black. There we go. Up steps Jimmy, who is also in white there we go these days he's totally dressed in black of course yeah. a bit of a dark destroyer these days but back in the early days he was in the lighter colors so jimmy's tried to play safe off the pack he's just clipped the left knuckle the left pocket knuckle there so it's not as safe as it could have been the first opportunity the frame will be first chance kirk stevens Has Jimmy sat in his seat there? 
he's gone over to Kirk's seat and sat down. Has he? I don't know. I just thought he had done. Oh, schoolboy error. Yes, he has, hasn't he? He's over there. But then he was virtually a schoolboy at this point. Yeah. But I like that. They there kind of go. they traded nice spots there. Nice pop from Stevens, and yeah. he's on the black. Jimmy will be thinking, okay, I'm three two down. It's first to five. If Kirk makes a few here, I'm two down with three to play. Mm. So uh, could be problems here. However, watch this black. Jimmy's oh. known for missing a very famous black off the spot, but here he benefited from one. Kirk Stevens yeah. missing an easy black off the spot. And so here we have Jimmy coming to the table. The black is tight on the uh, left cushion, I think. Yeah, tight on the left cushion. The pink oh. is pretty tied up at the top of the pack. So he's only really got blue and the bought colours to work with. That was good. Got on the right side of the blue there. Blue. Yeah, yeah. Here he is on the blue. Blue sunk. I like him in all that uh, kind of white. You've got the waistcoat that's a little off-white. You know, got the yeah, nice yeah. flare trousers and the white crisp shirt. He's dapper. He's he looking should, dapper. He should bring that back. I reckon that's a cool... Do yeah. Mind you, Dominic Dale does all this these days, doesn't he? he yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, he's a bit of a fruitcake, isn't he, old yeah. uh, Dale? But yeah, he's, he's one who likes his fashion maybe for jimmy's final tournament whenever yeah. that whenever and wherever that is crack that maybe you should bring out the white stuff again. i mean it, it works if don't you bring out the white stuff again we don't want any more cocaine <laughs> for it. i didn't mean that no 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 cut that bit out no no more cocaine oh jesus christ here we go pink has been very cleverly potted from the top of the pack there so the referee is going to put it on the black spots because he can't quite locate the pink spot that's useful. so that frees up the pink now for Jimmy to really make a few. And you'll notice now that that pink has been freed up, so Jimmy's pace around the table starts to shoot upwards. He's and very start nippy, to isn't he? see why the whirlwind is the whirlwind in a minute. He's up to 27 now, but still black tight on the left cushion and the pack not split yet until now. Round of applause from the crowd. Black uh, Reds out in the open, and he's up to 33. Sizing up the four Reds there, wondering if that loose one to the right will go. It is great to hear Tedlow's oh, voice. God, it, it's silk, isn't it? It's absolute silk. Absolutely. Sorely missed. Mm. So he's now taking these loose Reds with the pink that is out in the open. 40. He gets up a little bit on his shots, doesn't he? He's just... As in, before he's put the cue through, he's raising his head. You notice on the technique? Well, maybe yeah, not in yeah. that one. but it's, He's far more technically sound now mm, than he ever yeah. was then. He was a lot looser and, you know, far more... He's well, moving, natural, he, I suppose. Yeah, he's a natural here, but he's moving his head all over the show, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. But it has no bearing on the outcome, yeah. does it? With others, it would. Yeah. With, a, with a Davis or whoever, or a Hendry, this metronomic technique. Mm. 
any kind of movement like that and the the result would be affected mm. marvelous little screw back there yeah, to nice. free up that red he tried to free up the black as well but he's put the black in an even safer place so this 55 break so far zero blacks yeah one two three four five reds uh left on the table one tight on the right cushion and everything is just happening really quick yeah now. 62 he's up to so evenly matched still no blacks it's a shame there has to be a loser 68. kirk stevens kirk is looking uh, looking on admirably i think in these games they, they played a famous match at the masters as well in these games against each other yeah you were saying about bringing out the best in each other earlier on these two definitely did and they admired what each mm. of them were capable of and you just see uh Stevens watching on, not thinking frustratingly. He's just admiring good snooking. Absolutely. So Jimmy's now faced with his first sort of relatively tricky red. It's a bit of a stretch. It's that one down the left-hand side. Slotted comfortably. Nice, yeah. Left-handed, though. A lot easier left-handed. Jimmy on the pink. He's got one tight red. Not anymore. There we go. Well, where's it going? Oh, he's all right. So now both reds are potable. He's up to 92. two reds now at his mercy. Out with the rest. No problem. Out with the rest. In fact, that Joe Swale match the other mm. day, if we could critique one aspect of the game, perhaps... It was Jimmy's potting with the rest. The greatest oh, rest player in the world. Really? But I think he was naught from three in that match. Yeah. They were all tricky. Granted, they always are with the rest. But I think he was uh, black developed there. Oh. There we go. With a huge screw shot. Lovely. And here's a shot that people don't play very often. The long blue from behind down into a bottom corner. You don't see that very often these days. Long, uh, long brown. What did I say? Uh, blue, but it's okay. Yeah, long brown, that's what I meant. 96. Break up to 96. The previous frame that Jimmy won, he won it with a 108. Right. This is for back-to-back -back frame wins with centuries. Nice. He's up to 99. The brown will be flamboyantly potted. Watch this one. Look at that. Oh, hello. Check side kicking in. There we oh. go. Back up for the blue. I think I've seen this bit of the, before. He tries another one here, but it doesn't quite come off. And the break ends on 103. Three all in the match. Jimmy goes on to win the match 5-3 and become Winfield Masters champion 1984. Yay. And he does so with those two centuries, 108 earlier on, and that 103. <laughs> Look at that old school scoreboard. The scoreboard covered in plants either side. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> the good old days. Yeah. <laughs> Wicked. Oh, brilliant. Oh, that's nice. I mean, uh, and that would have really dented Stevens, wouldn't it? Two centuries in a row, midway through the match. You know, that's it's got to knock someone's confidence. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he didn't often get the better of Jimmy. They always had tight matches, exciting matches, free-flowing, huge break matches, always pretty much. 
but it was generally Jimmy that came out on top. And if anything, I think that probably left a bit of a sour taste eventually in uh, in Kirk's... Uh, if, if Kirk was to look back at their sort of... Um, their duels over the years, he he very rarely came out on top. Yeah. Oh, well. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, he'll get over it. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. All right, Ian. Well, uh, well that was brilliant. Loved watching that. I hadn't seen that frame before, so that was nice. He was crisp, you know, and the positional play as well. He was in position pretty much every shot. That wasn't the cue ball going all over the show. That was... Yeah, uh, yeah. He wasn't chasing the cue ball around like he does these days a little bit, but um, that was that was solid. And there were some challenging positional shots to be played. That um, mm. After he developed that red towards the end on the right-hand cushion and moved it over the bottom left pocket... He then had a very difficult positional shot to try and nudge the blackout with huge screw on it, comfortably done. There were some challenging positional shots in there, and he's not one who lords his own ability to play positional shots. Believe me, if, if there is one critique he has of himself, it is the positional side of things. Mm. But it was right on the money there, absolutely. Awesome. Well, I feel like, uh, I feel like our day is done. Our work is done for another Have we podcast. The end? I think so, mate. I'm afraid. So, uh, but we'll be back. We'll be back. We will. Um, I guess we'll check Shall in. Shall we with... be back um, into the China Open somewhere shortly after Jimmy has disposed of the current world champion? <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you say that, like a like a killer, like <laughs> like something something from Smirsh out of the Bond film. <laughs> <laughs> When shall we check in with your number three? <laughs> As I stroke the uh, the kitten, I'm here. We shall dispose of the jester from Leicester. We shall. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, the yeah. So, if you want to follow Ian, and you want to follow Jimmy, more importantly, um, the best Correct. way to do it is through Ian and his Twitter handle, which is at Whirlwind Fan Ian. On or Twitter, Fanny Ian, as you kind or of suggested well, earlier, that's Whirlwind. a totally different Twitter page. That one, <laughs> Whirlwind Fanny, and much better, might I add. Um, and if you want to check out the uh, the video, then head over to the, the website uh, once more is humanresearch.xyz and click on the podcast page. Brilliant. Well, cheers, Ian. No worries. Until until uh, a couple of weeks, maybe we'll uh, we'll do yeah, this all yeah. again. We shall. All right. Cheers, bye. buddy. See you soon. Bye bye. Have a good one. Ta-ra, The statistics didn't lie, though. Had the whirlwind blown himself out?